This is my body. There are primarily three ways of taking this. There is the way that we take it, which has... Whoa, 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 what, what am I doing? Sorry, too many buttons. The way, the way that we take it jumps through no grammatical hoops at all, no exegesis. It's simply taking the words at face value. This means this, is means is, body means body. That's what the words mean, that's what we believe it means. Uh, the Roman Catholic teaching is called transubstantiation. It means that it changes into. Which, by the way, however, a Roman Catholic would say, what am I receiving in the Lord's Supper? Is it still the body and blood of Christ? Yes. For the forgiveness of sins? Yes. So it's still a valid sacrament. There are some errors there, but still a valid sacrament. The vast majority of the Reformed, that is all other denominations that are not Catholic, Lutheran, or Russian Orthodox, the, like, but we would, we would say most of the Baptists, all of the Methodists, and so on, the Reformed, teach something entirely different. They teach that this is, must mean, this represents. The problem is Greek is a very precise language. In, in, in Hebrew, to say a thing precisely, you talk all the way around it, which is why the Psalms have so much repetition. Okay? Greek shoots an arrow into the center of my idea and boing, that's exactly what that word means. Greek is a precise language. There are all kinds of words. For, for example, represents histemi, stands for anistemi, is estin. That's all it is. It's just is. Is, is, is. When Luther debated about the Lord's Supper, he wrote, I believe it was with chalk on the table, is, is, is. And he, put, he covered it with a cloth handkerchief or something. And when they would get down to, well, what does is mean? And Luther would take off the cloth. Is, is, is. This is the word that means is. You, you don't have, uh, because Jesus doesn't go through any exegetical hoops when he, when he gives this to the disciples. The disciples, nobody raises their hand. You, know, you don't get Thomas saying, well, hang on. Hang on, hang on. Before I'm going to eat this, what do you mean by is? You know, what do you mean by body and stuff like that? No, it's just, this is my body. They, were, they may have been expecting that if he would equate something with himself, he would have picked up the flesh of the lamb. But he doesn't. He says, the bread, this is my body. He goes to a much simpler earthly element, doesn't he? Is lamb available everywhere in the world? No. Is bread? Yeah. Yeah. Same with, with baptism. What's more plentiful in the world than water? You know. So, this is my body. Um, so I have this, these on the bottom of your sheet. I'll, I'll cycle through them on the screen as well. But we do not interpret the words of institution. With Luther, we simply read them. Um, we don't go through any extra hoops. We do not rely on a complicated exegesis for this understanding. We simply allow bread to be bread, is to be is, body to be body, and so on. There are no grammatical hoops to jump through to get to this understanding, nor did Christ or the apostles take time to analyze what was being said in the words, this is my body. Some critics, uh, namely, uh, 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 I think he was a, 
He was either a Calvinist or a Methodist, but his name was Charles Hodge. At the end of the 1900s, early of the, or, or end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, Charles Hodge. There are some, he wrote a famous doctrinal book and so forth. Um, but some critics accuse Lutherans of accidentally arriving at the meaning that the bread truly is the body of Christ without taking the words of institution literally. Their argument is, you know, if you would take, if you say you take the words literally, you're going to end up with this really is the body of Christ. That can't be what you mean, right? And yeah, you're right. But they think that we've made a mistake by, oh, you've, you've, you've painted yourself into a corner, you Lutherans. You say one thing and now you have to stand with it because you're, you're going to just bow to the word of God? Well, what would we say? Thank you, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I am going to let the word of God paint me into a corner and I am going to stand on the word of God. Yeah, that's exactly right. But meanwhile, the Methodists are snickering behind their hands because they think that we've messed up. And we know that's the opposite. You don't get it. However, while their judgment of the Lutheran belief is correct, they cannot comprehend why Lutherans would want to arrive at this accidental, I'll call it, understanding. This is clearly because the Reformed cannot comprehend that the bread and wine could be what the scriptures say they are, the body and blood of Christ. They want it to mean represents or something like that. And so they go through all kinds of detours to get there. And one uh, also uh, common accusation is that we must have imposed um, our view of Christ's omnipresence, for example, into the Lord's Supper to get to body of Christ, blood of Christ. Um, but, uh, however, the reverse is true. It's the Lord's Supper that's one of the proof passages for the omnipresence of Christ, not the other way around, if you understand my meaning. Um, yeah. So, um, now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about a couple things of the Lord's Supper, but we can take a second. Anybody have a burning question about the Lord's Supper? How do I explain to other protestants? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, the, the easiest way to do that is, uh, Naoko, are you a Star Trek fan? Yeah. Okay, let's hold up the Spock hand of forgiveness. Okay? So, in Catholic teaching, only two things are received. A, a Catholic will believe that it is only the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, that the bread and the wine have fallen completely away. And there is no longer anything but the body and blood of Christ. Okay? But the Bible teaches the full Spock hand of forgiveness. So, two things here next to each other. The bread and the body of Christ. Two things here. The wine and the blood of Christ. We receive all four of those. 
And the Bible teaches that we receive this thing over here, which is the forgiveness of sins. Okay? See, at this point, the Reformed, who will teach this, will say, bread, wine, remembrance only. It's a memorial feast, which is why the Methodists will only have communion once, twice, three times a year. And why a Methodist will say, you know, we don't have to use real bread. We don't have to use real wine. We could have, we could have the, as, as I found out my vicar here, when I was doing campus ministry, there was another group also doing campus ministry. And my college students wanted to know, how come they get to have Doritos and Mountain Dew for Lord's Supper? And I thought, because it's not bread and wine? <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that was my answer. Um, but you, using that symbol teaches you all five things that we get. And maybe that would help. That, you, that this, is, this is so weak and this is so much. This contains everything that scripture has for us going on. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, Yes. Um, there was a misunderstanding when uh, many Lutherans came to the United States. They were coming out of the Lutheran church that had been infected in the 18th century, the 1700s, by the teachings of the Lutheran pastor, the German Lutheran pastor, Jacob Spainer, um, who was the father of pietism. And the pietists wanted to impose extra, they were very much the Pharisees of the Lutheran church. And um, there, were, there were men like uh, Valentin Lescher who were fighting against them in Germany and writing, writing weekly newspapers about what's wrong with this pietist movement. But the pietists gained a lot of favor. And a lot of the pietists ended up coming over to America. And uh, they uh, took things that Luther had said um, and, and misapplied things like you shouldn't take communion less than four times a year. They just changed one word. You should take communion four times a year. Well, that's not what he said, and that's not very wise. If Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, I'm going to latch onto that word often and say, we should take communion often. Um, and most of us growing up probably took communion about once a month. Something like that. And I would call once a month often. I certainly call twice a month often. And I certainly call twice a month with other opportunities, even oftener, right? But there are, there are Wells churches that have gone to every service. No exceptions. That, I think, is the pendulum has maybe swung the other way. I'm not sure that you need to do that. In fact, I know you don't need to do that, but I don't want to criticize my brothers and sisters. But, um, uh, but uh, letting communion go down to very few, very seldom, is, uh, is unwise. 
Yeah. And many, many of our Wisconsin Synod forebears were, whether we would like to know that or not, came out of that pietistic movement. Um, we did not make our dramatic theological, not political, theological turn to the right until 20 years into the history of the Wisconsin Synod. You know, it took a little while before men like Bodding and Heineke got in here and stood on the Lutheran confessions. There was a famous ordination sermon where the ordaining pastor was critical of the Lutheran confessions, called them paper fences. And then the student he was, he was ordaining preached his first sermon, the same service, because, you know, you get to hear two on that day, um, completely undoing everything his ordaining pastor had just said. We will stand on the Lutheran confessions, naming them, explaining them. And he became president of the, of the Wisconsin Synod very soon after that. But really made, made the Synod take a turn theologically to the right, very conservative stance. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know about that. I don't. I. I only found out that that was the the case about ten years ago. I didn't even know that that happened. Oh, even in 1963. Well, that's the year before I was born. <laughs> I do know that there were churches that did that, though. But and I think it was more of a custom, um, you know, that maybe came out of the synagogue because some synagogues behave the same way today. Men on one side, women on the other. Depends on the Methodist church. Usually not. But if the minister's husband is ex-Wisconsin Synod and he's in charge of buying the elements, he's going to buy some Mogan David or some Temple and they're going to have wine. So it does happen in some Methodist churches. Anybody else? So often... oh. Half a hand is a hand. Well, I'm just curious. When I was younger, I remember the church service ending, people being excused, and then communion, and then you could stay for the communion yeah. part of the mm-hmm. service. Do any churches do that much anymore? No. Like uh, and and uh, the, the reason that... Oh, Saloa does. Saloa does. It happened here at St. Paul's specifically because people were just leaving. It took so long that people would just leave if they didn't want to have communion. They knew that it was going to be 45 minutes yet, and they were just done. And it bothered my predecessor. So Pastor Henning decided, I'm going to dismiss them with a blessing, so that at least if they go, they get to have a blessing. And so he did that. He introduced that. He thought to himself, this is not great. This is not ideal, because I'm kind of condoning what they're doing, but I can't stop them. So I may as well at least bless them. And so that's what he did. And then um, after Pastor Sutton got here and then the kid, um, they, they began to, to try to remove the dismissal. I, I like referring to myself as kid. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. Because um, uh, this is 23 years ago now. We, we decided to, to remove the dismissal and we encouraged people to, but the way we did it though was we stopped having the long communion services. That's when we went to continuous flow. I take great offense 
when other Christians try to call a continuous flow drive-through communion because it is not and it diminishes the Lord's sacrament. And that I believe, I, I um, or rather I'm going to try to say this evangelically, I fear that they might be stepping on the eighth commandment by doing that. Um, and so I don't think that that should be done. And besides, during COVID, we found out what real drive-through communion is because we did that too. I mean, honest to goodness, drive-through communion. Um, but we did, we went to the continuous flow or convention style, which it's also called, and communion never lasted more than 10 minutes ever again. It did kind of kill him 130, and, and we're never going to get to, to the 15th verse of I come, O Savior, to thy table. And I'm not going to belt out the verse where you get to say hell out loud ever again, you know, and, um, or anything like that. But uh, you can also choose what verses you sing. So I saw it. Yes. The way we do communion here is rather than have people come up and stand or kneel, we have people come up and while walking, they receive the bread, they stand there as a group, receive the bread, and then they move to another station as a family or an individual and receive the wine. They're still on their feet. And then they walk back to their pew. So nobody really, you don't, you don't stand there for a long time. You just stand there long enough to get the bread and then you move over and get the wine and then you go back. That's called continuous flow. And there are other ways of doing it. Some churches do it by passing out the elements in the pews. Um, I was at a wedding, uh, an Elka wedding, where they had communion in the pew. They had actually drilled holes in in additions next to the hymn racks. And they had little self-serve, one, one single-serve communion cups with a, with a wafer on top, which, by the way, who can open that without making the wine go everywhere? Um, it's, it's like me with, you know, Cheerios. It just, the whole thing, I just can't do it. I have to use the scissors. Um, and, uh, and so uh, they're just there, and they'll just say, now commune yourself. Or whatever, and the whole, and then that, that takes just seconds, one minute, and we're done with communion. I mean, that's pretty quick if everybody does it at the same moment. But um, so there are different, different ways, different ways. In Paul's day, they brought their own elements, which is why Paul says some of you are are gorging yourselves, and some of you are going hungry, and some of you are getting drunk, and some of you go without. This isn't right. You know, so Paul is an advocate for going to the, to let's, let's bring some and let's all have some. So that by the time we get to the Reformation, it has become standard practice to use what uh, Johann Gerhardt calls little round breadlets, which is what we would call wafers. They, are, they were already using them in the, 15, in the 16th century. So I believe with a large, probably wooden cookie cutter, you know, take the dough, put it down, take off whatever is not the breadlet, you know, the batter, roll that into a ball again, and then, and then take this with a pan inside, put it in the oven, and how long do you cook a breadlet? You know, I don't know, three minutes or whatever, then bring it out and then off you go. 
Already in the writings of Johann Gerhardt, 1620, 1640, this is, this is standardized. So they're doing it. And maybe they had been doing it before, but that's the earliest reference I've ever found. So, and I'm not by any means the greatest scholar on earth. So, all right. Um, some variations in the wording. We're getting to the end here, and I want to go through one other thing, which is the, how often we talked about that, but the four questions that I, uh, four questions to ask before I receive the Lord's Supper. Um, and this should be on the second page, I think, but at the, at the bottom there. So am I sorry for my sins? Do I trust in Jesus for forgiveness? Do I believe this truly is his body and blood? And do I want to live a more godly life? Now, when you're coming up to communion, you may think, oh, what are the four questions? Well, be of good cheer, because if you've been participating in the liturgy, you've already answered all of these questions. That's all just part of the liturgy. I mean, confession of sins, am I sorry for my sins? We got the absolution already, right? Do I trust in Jesus for forgiveness? Well, yeah, I do. And then his body and blood, I heard that in the, in the consecration of the elements. Do I intend to live a more godly life? I heard that in the consecration of the elements as well. This is just the liturgy. But these are the questions that we ask. Yes? Is there a reason that we have communion where we do the liturgy and not right after the absolution? Yeah, in fact, here at St. Paul's, we tried it there uh, for a while. We have, we have a variety of services. And in one of our contemporary settings, we have an A, B, C, D contemporary variety. And I think it was in the A setting. We put communion up front. Um, and that was suggested because then you get to have communion, you know, your sins are forgiven, then you hear the sermon, right? And so forth. And um, uh, we just had a lot of kickback against it. It just didn't feel right to do that. You know, it's, it's, it, it seems better to do it later on. But also, the, the sermon may also kick up other, and, and the, the reason we finally let go of it is that the sermon may kick up other sins I've committed in my life. And then, oh, I already did communion, but now this, this, the preaching has exposed something else. And so I think that's why we do it where we do it. Um, um, but, but also in, 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 the, in the German mass, the, in the service Luther used, it was after the sermon also, um, and so on. But we thought of doing it, we tried it partly because of the issue of the dismissal. You know, well, if we put it up front, they can't leave yet, you know. <laughs> but, uh, which isn't the right, you know, reasoning to do that either. But, but I, I think that the idea of, but what if, what if the sermon, you know, digs up a sin? You know, like when I'm washing the dishes and I realize someone didn't even scrape off the bottom plate in the dishwater. And you pick it up and there's like a napkin and a bone and a big dollop of ketchup. And you don't have to know what happens in my life. But, uh, you know, this stuff that happens every now and then and, and, uh, and whatever else. So, all right. Then back to the cup. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Um, this passage, uh, we're, we're just remembering uh, a couple of things here um, that uh, uh, Jesus will eat, eat the meal again with us in a new way in heaven. But notice how Jesus compresses all of it. Everything that's going to happen from that moment forward, Jesus compresses into that sentence. Um, I will not eat from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Demonstrative pronoun, that. Uh, I'm sorry, this fruit of the vine. Meaning, would Jesus drink other wine or vinegar? Yeah, but not this, not the Lord's Supper. Um, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, I have, an, I have, an, I have, an, I have an, a story here, but I think I'm going to keep it to myself because we're running low on time, but maybe afterwards or something like that. After they sang a hymn, oh, they would have sung the beginning of the, it's called the Egyptian Hallel. It's Psalms 115 to 118. They'd have done 115, 116 earlier in the evening, and now they would probably sing 117, which is only two verses, and Psalm 118 at the end. That's probably the hymn that they sang. And then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is the tallest peak in the area. Looks down actually into the temple and so forth. Um, very lovely spot. Jesus said to them, This night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's Zechariah 13. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I remember misspeaking that once. I think it was in a Bible class. I don't think it was in the pulpit. But I, I claimed that that verse was in Jeremiah once, and it's not. It's Zechariah 13. I just I make mistakes once in a while. Um, Peter answered him, even if I fall away because of you, I will, even if all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Amen, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I had to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Um, the, uh, do you remember Jesus saying, uh, the rooster will crow twice? That's in Mark's version, not in Matthew's. That's, that's Mark 14, 30. Um, so that the rooster will crow twice, but the rooster will crow um, and then Gethsemane itself. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. This is a photograph of the Garden of Gethsemane. It is probably the most beautiful place in all of Israel or Palestine or the whole Middle East. It is absolutely lovely. Just a neat little spot. The trees are not very tall, but they're very lush. There are uh, lilies growing there. You see, actually see lilies in the foreground on the bottom there and small trees, um, pathways here and there and lush vegetation, bushes and things. There are no tangles up there. It's just, it was an olive grove um, in Jesus' day or earlier so that it had the name. And then people still used it as a nice place to get away. And um, I think if I had been around in those, time, in those days, I would have been up there a lot. 
You know, just as a nice, quiet place to be and to pray. It also reminds me, and forgive me for putting it this way, and if somebody's eyes roll, I just I'm sorry, but there is a place um, out at the um, state game farm in Poinette, where I grew up, that looks just like this. Um, it really is. There are small trees. It's just a lovely little gardeny park kind of a place. And it's just a gorgeous little area. It was a long bike ride from town, though. So I didn't get to go there as often as I would have liked as a kid. But in summertime, I would ride out there. Sometimes on my bicycle, carrying my little portable typewriter. Because I would go out there and write. Um, I was addicted to writing in those days, as I still am today. And my, I knew exactly how many pieces of paper would fit in my typewriter without breaking the lid. you know. And I would go out there and type and so forth and uh, but um, yeah so Jesus goes out there to go and pray he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee who are they James and John of course and began to be sorrowful and distressed what is weighing down on his shoulders yeah the cross and the the agony of what was going to come before the cross all of the punishment and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So he leaves them there. The other disciples are somewhere else in the garden. He takes the inner circle with him a little bit further in. Then he goes off by himself. Just keep watch. Went a little farther. Um, another gospel tells us a stone's throw. How far can you throw a rock? Yeah. Yeah. 20, 30 yards. Something like that. Um, he fell on his face. Not on a boulder, but don't go correcting your painting at home. But he fell on his face and prayed. And he said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Um, the main point of the prayer. My body doesn't want to do this. My, I, I know in my spirit I have to do this, but this is going to hurt. And I don't think I want to do this. This is, the, this is the recoiling that any of us would have over anything that's going to hurt. Um, and the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer. Jesus says, can I get out of it? The Father says, No. no. On your sheet, I have a, a four blanks, the four answers God normally gives to prayers. Remember, God only hears the prayers of believers. The four answers, most obvious, yes. Second most obvious, no. Yeah, not yet, or wait. Very good. And the one that surprises us, you're, you're not asking for enough. Yeah. Something better is coming. Something bigger is coming. There's a, 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 an example of that in Isaiah. Lengthen your tent stakes. Because um, I'm going to fill up this tent a lot bigger than you think. So there's even more coming. Um, let this cup pass from me. It's, of course, the cup of suffering. Um, and it's not the cup he's worried about, but the suffering that comes with it. But not as I will, as you will. He says, 
Your will, finally, your will be done. He came to the, that was our time, wasn't it? Um, can I finish the moment? Is that okay? We started late. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so were you not able to stay awake with me for one hour? How many glasses of wine? 10 or 12? All oh, is a lot. Watch and pray so you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that who does not enter into temptation? You. Jesus isn't asking Peter and the others to pray for him. He's asking them to pray for themselves. Yeah. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. The spirit is my Christian side. The flesh is my sinful human nature. And they often don't get along. The flesh quite often says, get out of my way. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to pass from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. The second prayer is, your will be done. If I gotta, I gotta. Again he returned and found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time. He said the same words as before. Do you think it's the, first, the words as the first prayer or the same words as the second prayer? It's at least the second prayer. It might be both, but at least the second prayer. I, someday I wonder if I would be this mean and give the three prayers in the garden to three separate preachers on Good Friday in the Traore service. I would get dirty looks from somebody. It would be hard to preach on the third prayer. I have the context. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, I'd do it myself. Yeah. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Look, my betrayer is near. So the third time, um, he says, get up because it's going to happen now. And they're about to all run away from him. God bless all of you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thanks for letting me do this. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.